hello and welcome to another episode of Addiction Audio, the podcast from the journal Addiction. Today um, I am joined by Harry Tatton-Birch, uh, who is a PhD student at the Department of Behavioural Science and Health at UCL. Um, Harry, welcome to Addiction Audio. It's great to be here. Um, so Harry's here to talk about his article, which uh, when you listen to this will just have been published online. Uh, and the article is titled Rapid Growth in Disposable E-Cigarette Vaping Among Young Adults in Great Britain from 2021 to 2022, a repeat cross-sectional survey. Um, so, uh, so Harry, this, um, this article looks at uh, disposable vaping products, which I, I certainly know that I've seen more of, and obviously that's not, that's not evidence or science, but I've certainly seen more of them around in the last year or so. And so that's what you're looking at. You mentioned in the background that the original vaping products were were disposable products and that kind of went away and now they're coming back again. How does this kind of new generation of disposable vaping products differ from that original version? Yeah, so so as you say, the original vaping products were disposable, but they tended to be um, not very good at delivering nicotine. Whereas these newer devices are much, much better at delivering nicotine. Um, and I think that's that's why originally disposable vapes didn't gain that much popularity. Um, and rechargeable devices um, became more popular. Uh, but then recently, because the technology has sort of improved on these disposable vapes, that they're now able to deliver nicotine um, in a similar way to rechargeable devices, that's why I think they're they're gaining popularity. It's it's kind of, it's fascinating. I always I always think that kind of uh, the e-cigarette research is fascinating because it's um, it's very visible as opposed to like illicit drugs where it's difficult to see and measure. Vaping, you know, the changes in vaping are being played out in front of you in in, in shops and 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 all those things, which I think is fascinating. Um, uh, is there is there any kind of like why so your your study looks at the, like this uh, the popularity the recent increasing popularity which we'll get to in a bit but is there a reason why this is important i mean why why should we care if people are using disposable now instead of uh, pod versions or rechargeable versions that's a good question so so i think there's a few reasons to be interested first is just to know what's going on in the the nicotine market what's sort of the most popular type of product um, because products might differ in what the harmfulness, the um, addictiveness, um, and also the environmental impact is a big one um, because a lot of people are concerned about the, rightly so, the, the environmental impact of essentially an electronic product that you use for a few days or a week and then just throw it away. Interestingly, they actually use rechargeable batteries, but just throw them away, <laughs> which seems like a massive waste. Um, and yeah, I'm sure many listeners have seen these disposable baits just around on the floor um, because yeah, they, they do produce a lot of waste. It, uh, yeah, it's quite quite interesting. Like the, there's kind of, Research's focus tends to be on kind of uh, health effects of these things for, for you know, very important uh, reasons. But then looking at those kind of other impacts is is, is important as well. Um, 
it was uh, at the time of recording it was uh, Notting Hill Carnival um, on the previous weekend um, and I cycled to work on the Tuesday after Notting Hill and um, the previous time I did it which was obviously a few years ago before lockdown um, there was the new hazard of the um, nitrous oxide whippets just all over the road which I had to kind of dodge and I noticed this year uh, cycling through, there were lots of disposable uh, vaping products, which uh, which I was also worried about falling off, falling over on. I didn't fall over, which I think is probably. And that, that that's actually what inspired me to to run this study in the first place. Was I'd noticed just this massive rise in my social group in the number of people using these products. I started started seeing them everywhere. Um, within the space of what seemed like a couple of months, they went from being nowhere to being everywhere in my social network. So I wanted to see whether that was also true at the population level. So so how quickly from, from kind of making that observation? So obviously this is a kind of, you know, this is one of those challenges where research studies something that's happening now. Um, and the Smoking Toolkit study makes that um, a bit more possible. And we'll come to that in a moment. But how, how long did it take you from kind of noticing that and thinking we should look at it to being able to, to publish peer-reviewed data on what was actually happening? So, well, in terms of getting, running the, the analysis originally, it only took maybe a month or a couple of weeks to, to get a first draft of, of the data ready to be, to be shared. And then we we put that up as a preprint, but obviously um, it takes then a, a few months to go through the the peer review process for the final article. But we actually updated the figures um, recently just to make sure that we've got the most up to date data, because obviously given how as as I'll describe in a bit how quickly things are changing, it's quite important to to have up-to-date figures of what's going on. I guess we'll, we'll come on to the Smoking Toolkit study, but I think the Smoking Toolkit study has been an amazing resource in allowing us to, to yeah, look at this data in a timely manner. Yeah, uh, uh, Claire Garnett, we, uh, we recorded an interview with Claire Garnett um, a, a month or two ago, uh, and she talks about the smoke, Smoking Toolkit study and um, how, uh, how beneficial that is. Uh, for people who haven't come across this or certainly don't know the inner workings of it, what is the Smoking Toolkit study and, and how do you use that to to identify what's going on? Yeah, so the, the Smoking Toolkit study is a representative survey of adults in Great Britain. And obviously there are a lot of representative surveys of adults in Great Britain. But what makes Smoking Toolkit study unique is that the data are collected every month. So there's around 2,500 adults recruited each month, asked a number of questions about their smoking and vaping and drinking. Um, and what this allows is us to see what's going on in real time in the nicotine and tobacco market. Um, and obviously with the traditional nationally representative surveys it can actually take like a year two three years before the data are actually published from the study um, from the survey and what this means is you can't really respond quickly to to what's going on um, but yeah the smoking toolkit study really allows us to do that i don't think we would have been able to spot this change so quickly 
if it wasn't for that um, data source. Um, yeah, it, I mean, it's I've, I've 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 worked with the smoking toolkit study before, and it's it is it is an amazing resource. Um, so in your analysis of it, um, it was really interesting. So like, and this is in the in the graphs, you you, you identify rather than um, uh, identifying age ranges, you, you pick out four specific ages. Why did you do that? And um, does that mean that people who weren't those ages were excluded from your analysis? No. So so basically, what we did was we modelled um, age continuously rather than grouping people into categories because that's just a more efficient way to do it predictably um, and it doesn't lump people into arbitrary categories based on um, cutoffs like which are always arbitrary of course um, and then we just picked out a few sort of representative ages so 18 year olds 25 year olds 35 year olds and so on it's the most efficient way to make use of the data. When you're doing that, uh, does that mean that you don't have cutoffs? So if someone, you know, I can't remember what your age groups were, but if someone was halfway between, say, 25 and 35, how does that modelling decide which, uh, which data point they go under? The model itself, you can get estimates for any age. You just um, basically ask what, what age you want to get estimates for by plugging numbers into the linear model. We use these things called um, restricted cubic splines, which allows sort of non-linear relationships between age and prevalence of disposable vaping. Um, but yeah, it doesn't require lumping people into categories, basically. But you could think of it that someone who's, you want to be able to use information from people who are similar ages. So someone who's 19 provides some information about someone who's 80, more so than a 45-year-old provides information about someone who's 80. That makes sense. Um, my, my, my next question was going to be, uh, what is a restricted uh, cubic spline um, with three knots? But uh, I, I am certain I won't understand the answer. Well, the basic idea of what you're trying to do with the spline is just allow, normally when you run a model, people will just assume that there's a straight line relationship between um, the predictor and the outcome. So as age increases by five years, there's uh, an increase of, say, two percentage points in um, the prevalence of vaping. Whereas with a spline, you basically allow that line to wiggle so that it, it could take on a number of different relationships. You could see an increase up to 30 years and then suddenly a decrease um, and that flexibility just allows you to better model what's going on. Fantastic. I, no, I did, I did get that. I, I, I feel impressed with myself and, and grateful to you for the explanation. Um, so uh, finally we get on to actually what you found. Uh, it's, it's quite staggering really, you know, in a, in a, in a field where you know, you get a significant change, but the actual change is point naught one. Of uh, often, you know, they're, they're small changes, but they're still significant because of your sample sizes. You you found an eighteen fold increase over the course of a year. That's that's an enormous change um, in in behaviour, and that's an increase in in use of disposable vaping products. Were you expecting it to be that big? No, I, I definitely wasn't expecting it to be that big, um, because of how stable it's been before this time period as well where vaping 
um, the percentage of people who are vaping was relatively stable. And also among vapors, most people who vape were using these rechargeable um, devices. And that's stayed stable since for maybe 10 years. And then suddenly, out of the blue, these disposable vapes have come along and basically just within a few months taken over the, the nicotine market. And what was most noticeable was the age breakdown of, of that change. There's been an increase in disposable vaping overall, as you say, an 18-fold increase from just over 1% of disposable vapes in January 2021 to about 22% of vapors. This was most pronounced among the youngest age groups. So in 18-year-olds, the percentage of vapors who are using disposable rose from under 1% to over half now of, vape, of young vapors are using disposable products. So they've come to basically become the most popular product among young people um, within such a short space of time, which was quite shocking to me. And particularly, as you know, quite rightly, there's, there's often a focus on young people when it comes to uh, nicotine, tobacco, smoking and vaping. Um, but the other, the other important part of your, your analysis is about um, whether and how uh, that was among people who already smoke, who smoke as well or who, who, who don't smoke. Can you explain a bit more about your findings there? Yeah, so, so obviously hearing that there's this massive rise in use of disposable products among young people, that, that raises alarm bells in a lot of people's heads. Uh, that maybe these products are starting to attract people who would otherwise avoid nicotine entirely, which would obviously be a negative effect on public health. Um, so that's what we were trying to look at was what would these people otherwise be doing if they weren't using disposable vapes? Would they be, say, using other types of e-cigarette? Would they be smoking cigarettes, which would be a good thing that they're now not using the most harmful form of nicotine? Um, or would they not be using any nicotine entirely? Um, so to do that, we looked at trends in the percentage of people who are smoking, the percentage of people who are vaping, and the percentage of people who are using any nicotine at all, so smoked or vaped. And what we saw is among those, the youngest ages uh, in 18-year-olds, there's been a relatively stable the percentage of people who are using any nicotine. So it's not like there's been this massive rise um, in the percentage of people um, using nicotine as a result of disposable vaping. Instead, we've seen uh, a slight decline in smoking. There's some evidence for a decline, but it's a bit noisy. And also um, a rise in the percentage of people vaping. So what this means is the young people who are using these disposable products, um, lots of them also vape, uh, sorry, also smoke. And a lot another group of them would otherwise be using other types of e-cigarettes. Um, so it gives some sort of reassurance that there's not this, they're not attracting tons of people who would otherwise avoid nicotine entirely. But important caveat to that, as we can see, this can change really quickly. Um, things in the nicotine market 
So it's important to keep tracking this to make sure that, yeah, they don't start attracting people who have never smoked or vaped before. Yeah, I, 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 I quite liked your, um, your terminology. You called it an uncertain decline in smoking prevalence. Um, and I think that, that idea of there being quite a lot of noise around this signal um, is, is really interesting. Um, so, so obviously yours is a uh, quantitative study and, and you didn't kind of identify the reasons for this change, but do you have any, any hypotheses, any emerging hypotheses as, as to why this has changed so quickly? Yeah, so I think there are probably at least three reasons why disposable vapes have become especially popular. Um, the first is just the low upfront cost of, of the devices. Um, so where, whereas disposable vapes used to be quite expensive, um, now you can buy a device for five pounds for, for a device that delivers the same amount of nicotine as maybe a 20 pack of cigarettes, um, which would cost twice the price. Um, and unlike other vapes where you have to buy a, a slightly ex more expensive device and then you can refill it with cheap e-liquid, but still the upfront cost is more. Um, you can just go into a, a corner shop and buy a disposable vape for very low cost. The second reason is that they're able to deliver nicotine smoothly. Um, and they're able to do this because they have a high nicotine concentration e-liquid, but they've paired this high nicotine concentration e-liquid with um, a thing called nicotine salts which is a more acidic form of e-liquid that makes it less harsh to inhale. Um, and they also use what's called synthetic coolants, which are chemicals that act in a similar way to, to menthol, sort of give this um, cooling effect on the throat, which also allows people to inhale this high concentration of nicotine um, in a smoother way. Um, and then the third reason, what I think is probably the most important reason for why they've become so popular, is just the convenience of of the disposables. You can just um, walk into a shop, buy the device, open the packet, and instantly start using it. You don't have to know anything about um, the coils in your e-cigarette, the the concentration of your e-liquid. Um, you don't have to charge it. So, because of that, it just sort of um, makes it much easier for someone to to start using that product. And based on conversations I've had with people, um, that's one of the main reasons why they use them, just because it's convenient. There was some amazing research from Francis Thurway, um, some qualitative research on uh, technology of e-cigarettes. It's, it's one of my favorite research papers, actually. Um, uh, and where she talks about um, the, the easy access of kind of and I'm paraphrasing, of smoking technology. If you buy a packet of cigarettes and you've got a lighter, anyone can do that. Whereas with these uh, initial kind of um, generations of e-cigarettes that required batteries and mounting and heads and atomizers and liquid, that actually that posed quite a barrier to, to adopting that technology. And I suppose this kind of disposable, you can just pick it up and, and go, starts to remove some of those barriers. Exactly. Uh, because before these devices, it has really been easier to to start smoking than it has to to vape because of what you say. Whereas now, I'd say it's probably gone the other way, where 
it's even easier for someone to to start vaping than it is to start smoking because yeah the there's basically no barrier anymore yeah um so in your um in your article you're you're very clear that you're uh, just reporting on changes in usage pattern and you 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 kind of you leave words like good or bad out of it um wisely i i think probably um but do you, do you have any thoughts yourself um, about the health implications of vaping and uh, the debate that can, can surround the need to regulate or indeed promote vaping products? Yeah, so I, so I think there is a lot of evidence, of course, showing that um, e-cigarettes are likely to be much less harmful than cigarettes. Um, but that that's always the thing. It's less harmful than cigarettes. So... So what we need to make sure is that the people who are using e-cigarettes are people who would otherwise be smoking cigarettes and not people who would otherwise be avoiding nicotine entirely because they do likely have some risks. Um, so, yeah, you, you want to avoid people using them if they wouldn't smoke otherwise. Um, and that's really what we need to keep checking to see um, is there something about these products that might start attracting people who would otherwise not smoke? Um, and if so, then there might be um, reason to regulate them. Because I know there are there's data from Ash from Action and Smoking and Health um, looking among young younger people. So we only looked down to eighteen year olds, but they looked among um, youth people under the age of sale. And also showed that there's been this rise in disposable vaping among those age groups. So I think that is something important to look at. Like, what what is it about these products that might be attracting young people? And um, is that something to be concerned about? Uh, fantastic. Um, so, uh, um, thanks for that. Um, thanks for that. What a ridiculous response. Um, um, so uh, moving away from this paper, uh, what are you working on now? What are the next steps in your, uh, in your research? So well, relevant to this, I'm also going to be updating the figures on disposable vapings every month. So if any listeners are interested in tracking this, um, then just send me an email and I'll, I'll add them to the mailing list um, where they can get some up-to-date figures on disposable vaping. Um, and other than this, I'm, I'm focusing on finishing my PhD thesis, um, which is the deadlines coming up in a few months. Um, and yeah, looking to what to do beyond my PhD. Um, well, uh, good luck with it. I'm, not, I'm, I'm sure you won't need luck. Um, uh, the soon to be Dr. Harry Tattenbirch, uh, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much, Rob. It's great.